1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. A future with human-like AI is no longer limited to the pages of sci-fi. It's now the dream of big tech too. But is this just a pipe dream? In this episode, join philosopher of perception, Mashvita Chiramuta, as she argues that human-like AI is and will remain a fantasy. Mashfita Chiramuta is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Edinburgh University with interests in neuroscience and philosophy of mind, especially in colour perception. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to welcome Mashfita Chiramuta to Philosophy for Our Times.
0: What I want to explain today is that even if it's a complete mistake to expect biological intelligence to be replicable in silicon-based machines, the opposite could still seem inevitable to people. For a complicated set of reasons to do with founding philosophical assumptions of science and technology and the history of industrialization, AI could look inevitable even though it's impossible. To begin, to get everything clear, what are we actually talking about today? The term AI is used to refer to many different kinds of technology, both actual ones and science fictional ones. My focus is on the kind of AI that aspires to replicate the all round intelligence of human beings or, more modestly, of animals whose cognitive skills we're quite familiar with, like a dog or a cat. This is what's normally known as artificial general intelligence or AGI what do we mean by artificial? The double meaning of this word was something that was noticed by one of the founders of AI research, the American cognitive scientist and economist Herbert Simon. He looked at his dictionary and saw that it defines artificial as produced by art rather than by nature, affected, not pertaining to the essence of the matter. And then what would be the opposite of artificial is actual, genuine, honest, real, truthful. So he's saying that With this double meaning of artificial you see that there's this ambivalent feeling that people have towards their own products but what he wants it to mean by artificial in the term ai is just this neutral thing that it's man-made as opposed to natural but to lay my cards on the table i think that the negative meaning that herbert simon dislikes gives you the right way to think about the artificial in current ai and this is based on deep learning in artificial neural networks. So I've put on the slides here, just a schematic of one of these um, deep learning architectures that you might have heard about, which would be behind, say, face recognition technology or object cognition. And some like famous examples of this that have been in the news would be technologies like GPT-3, the language processing AI, or AlphaGo, the one that um, Deep DeepMind uh, produced a few years ago. So it's a kind of it's often talked about as like a simulation of a brain network because you see all of these little nodes here. They're very schematic, idealized um, computer models of what people maybe 60 years ago thought was going on in actual neurons in your brain. But all neuroscientists know that the brain itself operates in a way which is quite different from what's simulated in a model like this. So there is this ambivalence within the community of thinking of these as, in some sense, artificial brains, but in other ways recognizing that they're really not brain-like at all. And neuroscientists themselves are interested in the capability of these machines as maybe giving you insight into how the brain actually works. But I don't think they work in any way like the actual brain for reasons that I'll talk about. Basically, what I think is going on with these creations like AlphaGo is that they have something more like a NERSAT's intelligence, that they're a very impressive imitation, but not the real thing. I actually think that there's more genuine intelligence in a worm than in GPT-3. So here's an interesting (laughs) example of a use of GPT-3, this language, massive AI network, which is a language generator. So what it does is that you can train it on text that humans produced, And it kind of learns the stylistic patterns of the text. So what's gone on here is that um, the human side of this project trained GPT-3 on the stylistic quirks of a particular poet. And after GPT-3 had been exposed to lots and lots of these poems, it was able to generate its own text in the style. What's really important about this project, though, is that the person that had actually instigated this project had to edit what GPT-3 created. So it's not like GPT-3 by itself could just generate poems that sounded good. The human had to like, take snippets and lines and sort of put them together in a way that was more artful than that. So I think that's something that often gets forgotten when people talk about like, the capabilities of these machines. I think the worm is more intelligent than this Poetry creating machine. So, in broad strokes, the reason for my thinking that current technologies are not a step along the way to AGI and that human like intelligence will never be replicated in digital computing machines is that I think that there is a much deeper connection between intelligence and aliveness than AI proponents realize. This prompts us to ask what is intelligence? Let me just contrast some different ways to think about intelligence. So this first way just says that, well, something which could be a machine is intelligent, just when it has some of the cognitive capacities that are distinctive of human beings or some other animals. And this is a way of thinking about intelligence that has really dominated the field of artificial intelligence. So when engineers like set up a benchmark saying that when a machine can play chess or when a machine can play Go, it is in some way intelligent, or when it can do facial recognition or object recognition, that's saying, well, when you can get the machine to do something clever that a person or animal can do, then it's on the way to being completely clever or like an animal or a person. But this other way of thinking about what intelligence is, is saying that there's this Pervasive property of living beings, which you can't disconnect from our idea of intelligence. So on this second view, the point is that in order just to stay alive, an organism, even a bacterium, even a single-celled organism, needs sensitivity to its environment, behavioral adaptivity, some kind of ability to learn or to utilize past experience. And this is saying that plants, microbes, fungi with all their signaling, as well as animals, are in some sense intelligent. So at least at some base level, there is intelligence everywhere amongst living things. This suggests that all living things have some form of intelligence, but not that only living things can be intelligent. So it's compatible with this view, it seems, that there could be artificial, non-biological versions of these capabilities. But here's why I think the pervasiveness of biological intelligence is relevant to the argument about AI. So the brain is an organ in a living body. The nervous system is made up of living cells. If these cells are already, like all cells, intelligent in some sense, let's call them proto-cognitive, this must be relevant to how it is that animals with brains and nervous systems have all the capacities that we classify as obviously intelligent. For example, a living cell is an inherently adaptive entity. Its learning is a fundamental component of the intelligence of humans and other animals. Learning is explained by neuroscientists in terms of brain plasticity, the constant restructuring that occurs amongst brain cells at many scales throughout life. It must be that brain plasticity And therefore, learning has the peculiar properties that it has because of the inherent adaptiveness of all living cells. It's interesting that artificial neural networks underlying current AI mimic in a very simplified form one kind of plasticity that goes on in the brain. But the process with which it's supposed to mimic learning, its training algorithm, is very unlike anything in the brain. This is probably because the neural network is running on computing hardware that has none of those proto-cognitive properties of living tissue. It gives us ersatz learning without the sensitivity and multi-scale adaptiveness of the original. But there's an argument that's often brought up here, when people like me who are skeptical about the prospects for AI make this observation that the only unquestionably intelligent things are living beings. So they'll say that, well, I'm in the situation now of someone at the turn of the previous century who looked around and saw that the only flying things were living things, they were birds and insects, and said, well, it's impossible for a machine to ever fly. And of course, they were proven wrong not soon after that. So the idea that people who are pro AI come out with here is to say there's no inherent connection between being able to fly and being alive, that there is some same laws of aerodynamics which go across whether you're a living thing or a machine. And they'll say, by the same turn, there are the same laws of cognition, the same laws of intelligence, which hold whether you're a machine, an artificial thing, a non-living thing, or whether you're a biological creature. So they'll say, of course, you know, cognitive science can study intelligence, whether it's in a machine or in an animal. But I think the problem with this argument is that there's a big difference with what I'm claiming about the essential connection between life and intelligence, most living things can't actually fly. Flight is not essential to being alive, whereas my suspicion is that some form of intelligence, proto-cognition, really is necessary and essential for life. Which means that to properly understand intelligence, you, you need to root it in its biological context. And this is what makes me skeptical that you could have genuine intelligence and not fake artificial intelligence in anything other than a living system. But you're probably thinking that this biocentric conception of intelligence seems just completely counterintuitive and off the wall and I think that's what many people think when they hear about this. So the next question I want to answer is like why does it not seem that there is this inherent connection between being alive and being intelligent if that's what's really going on. And I think this answers our earlier question as well, which is why would AGI seem inevitable even if it's not possible? So in the rest of the talk is (laughs) just gonna be going through three possible answers to these two questions. So the first answer seems to be relevant here. It's mind-body dualism. So you've probably heard of the philosopher René Descartes, who's on the right of this oil painting here. He's very much associated with the view that mind, especially the rational thinking of human beings in particular, is due to the fact of human beings having a soul, which is a separate substance from their body. So in his philosophy, there's no inherent connection with being alive and having a rational soul. Your body is just doing its own thing, and then you have a soul on top of that, and people sort of interpret uh, Descartes' dualism as also connected in some way to the religious tradition in the background, Christianity, where of course there is the doctrine that the soul lives on after the death of the body. I want to point out here, though, that Christianity is a bit, amb- a, bit a bit unclear about the relationship between life and soul because if you think about the words of the nicene creed it says i believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting so the life everlasting and the body resurrected it's, it doesn't seem like you have a soul which is in completely disconnected from your being alive and in terms of answering our question of like why people today sort of believe in the prospect of ai I don't think Cartesian dualism is necessarily the right answer, in particular because like 20th and 21st century AI engineers tend to be materialists about the mind. They don't think the mind is due to a separate substance. They just think that mind is a property of your body, and they're not actually dualists. They're materialists. So probably that's not the answer. But I think there's another answer to the related to Descartes, which is this idea of the body machine. So the biocentric notion of intelligence was actually one that was popular amongst philosophers prior to Descartes who were influenced by Aristotle. On that old view, what they called the soul was responsible for the vital functions of the body. So there couldn't be a living system unless there was literally some kind of mental or soulful activity at work. An innovation that we associate with Descartes, like kind of founding modern science, if you like, is part of this rejection of Aristotelian philosophy. And this is demoting the soul from having responsibility for keeping the body alive. The body is now seen as a machine that runs along without any need for intelligence in its operations. So even the intelligent reactions of the nervous system get reclassified as simple reflexes. And what you see on the slide here is an image from one of Descartes publications where he's showing the reflex, which is um, enabling the man to withdraw his foot. So the reflexes the sort of part of the nervous system here. And then there is this connection between the nerves of the body and the soul through the pineal gland in the brain. So the body and soul do you talk to each other, but the body's keeping itself alive is just the body machine. The soul doesn't have to be involved with that. So if the body is just a machine, and the brain is just an organ of the body responsible for intelligence, and this is what 20th and 21st century materialists think, or the people making AI devices, then it stands to reason that you could instantiate intelligence in another kind of machine, such as a digital computer. And on this slide here, you have Norbert Wiener, who is um, one of the other founders of AI. So he was a part of the cybernetics movement. And what is pictured here is one of his like cybernetic creations. These were machines which were supposed to have some kind of self-regulating ability to sort of go about their business in the world, a bit like an animal but it was very much part of this movement of research that whatever it is that animals are doing is something that could be quite straightforwardly instantiated in a machine. And what he and his co-author are talking about here is kind of admitting as when he says that from the scientific standpoint, the methods of study of human and animal behavior have to be applicable to mechanical objects as well. I think what he's admitting is that in order to make sense of biological intelligence and intelligent behavior of animals, to make sense of them as as scientists, they have to think of them in machine-like terms. So you don't get, if you like, the clarity of scientific insight that they want into biological intelligence without using machines as a model without drawing some analogy between what people have made, these engineered devices, and what they think is going on in animals as well. But I emphasize this because what I think it tells us is it's not a discovery of science that animals are machine-like, it's that science has to assume that animals are machine-like in order to make sense of them, which is why this idea of Machines having all the properties of animals seems then really compelling to people. Okay. So now we get to this final answer here. So the previous answer was all to do with the philosophical inheritance of AI today. My last answer considers the real-world context in which AI is being deployed. The important machines, the ones that change history and society, are not just toys. They have economic impact when they can be used to do work, previously requiring animal labor or human labor in just a superhumanly productive way. Steam engines became a replacement for horses' muscles. AIs are being developed today to be a replacement for humans' brains. Now, industrial machines don't need to be adaptive because they operate under conditions that have seen an extreme division of labor. Processes are streamlined and fragmented down to tiny specialized tasks that can be done much faster with purpose-built machines than you could do with ordinary labor. This is what I mean by the ecosystem for machines. To make this concrete, just picture a factory production line unintelligent, specialized machines, replace the work done less quickly by intelligent generalist human beings. No human being or animal could have the narrowness of expertise of an industrial robot and function and stay alive. What I think is that the impressiveness of AI machines like AlphaGo is parallel to the impressiveness of industrial machines that do one thing with this superhuman strength and speed. But actually, without the intelligence that is needed to work beyond the ecosystem of tasks that people arrange for it. And if human intelligence is anything, it is this general capacity to function outside pre-specified parameters. Hence, AGI, artificial general intelligence, is the holy grail of research, and yet, People seem very far away from achieving it. So the comparison I'm drawing with this last slide here is that when AlphaGo beat the world's um, Go champion, Lisa Dole, people were like, this made international headlines. People were extremely impressed because Go was a game that had been set out as this benchmark for any system that can play go well, must be like really intelligent in some sense. So when the machine sort of crashed that barrier, people thought that this machine, this technology, deep learning, was a step along the way to general artificial intelligence. You know, there was a lot of hype around it from that. And maybe the CEO of DeepMind wanted to increase that hype, but I don't think it was like completely a deliberate hoax. So they thought that, you know, with AlphaGo, that's the first glimmers of something that you see with a science fiction general intelligence like Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. But I think expecting AlphaGo to somehow morph into something like Hal is like expecting a car to, you know, with a bit of tinkering, be able to do something like jumping over a log like this horse does. It just isn't feasible right? that you go from car going on flat roads to jumping over logs. This is because both the car and the deep learning AI mimic one capability of the human or horse to an excellent degree. But that doesn't mean that they have captured anything essential about biological locomotion or intelligence. The machine does what it does by operating in a profoundly non-biological, hyper-specialized way. And that hyper-specialization is only viable because people build ecosystems for machines, such as flat tarmac roads. And the adaptiveness of biological locomotion or biological cognition is not required. So a horse is a machine... Sorry, horse is a machine. Horse is an animal that is able to do all kinds of things in uncontrolled environments like forest floor where it can still get around because it has a very adaptive um, way of just moving through the world. It can't be as powerful or as fast as a car, but a car needs this infrastructure built around it in order to achieve what it does. And I think similarly with deep learning, you have to give it a very narrow task pre-specified and then it's able to do an amount of data processing and number crunching, which is like fantastically impressive to a human being. But then that very adaptiveness, that very ability to sort of cope with situations beyond the parameters of what you've ever had to deal with before, that is really what's essential to general intelligence of humans and other animals. And that's what's lacking in the machines because they have never actually have to do that because they just run on the tracks that people have put in place for them.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.